If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the third History Extra podcast for July 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... People who we might traditionally have have thought as being rooted to a locality now moved much further afield. That was Paul Oldfield on the medieval travelling experience. And in front of him is a suffragette with a great big bottom, you know, oversized and fat. So that's the typical sort of humour that would be drawn upon. And that was June Purvis on what postcards tell us about the suffragettes. This podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. And we're also now available in a number of digital formats. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. And if you'd like to find out more information on our iPad edition, please visit historyextra.com forward slash iPad. As always, you can keep up to date with us and get in touch at facebook.com forward slash history extra and twitter.com forward slash history extra. Paul Oldfield is a lecturer in medieval history. He is currently at Manchester Metropolitan University and from September this year he'll be at the University of Manchester. His research into medieval travelling and pilgrimage has been aided by funding from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. He wrote a feature on the subject for the July issue of BBC History magazine. So before you head off on your holidays yourself, you might be interested to hear a bit more about the medieval travel experience. Our publisher, Dave Musgrove, caught up with Paul to find out more. Paul, thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, medieval travelling, the medieval mm-hmm. travelling experience, and sort of dwelling on uh, on, on pilgrimage, and, and specifically talking about uh, Italy and Sicily. But I suppose better start off with a more general question, which is: yeah. Did medieval people travel than perhaps today we might imagine? We tend to think of them sort of stuck on their, you know, on their on their farm or in their yeah. village, and, and never really going anywhere. You know, just going to the local village and and maybe the town for market if they were lucky but is that is that a false impression yes i would say broadly speaking it is and i think there's been quite a lot of research in the last 10 to 20 years that that has explored ways in which medieval people moved around their landscape and interacted and 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 a lot of that research has shown that people who we might traditionally have, have thought as being rooted to a locality now um moved much further afield and and specifically relating to my article, one of those growth areas of research has been pilgrimage and how varying people took part in a process which wasn't just about, or didn't bring just spiritual benefits to the individual, but 
allow them to engage and interact with various other cultures and societies in varying ways. So I think the picture is moving away now from travel as limited and purely functional to something that's um, more all-encompassing, that, that it allows us to consider various different aspects of movement and travel. So was was pilgrimage the main driver for medieval people to, to travel then? Or actually, is that overstating the case? Presumably they were commercial imperatives and yeah. practical requirements. So how, how important... Why, why, did, why did people travel? Um, as it recurs again and again throughout history, profit and power is always a good motivation for doing anything. And, and that certainly in, encouraged a lot of people to move in various contexts, military campaigns, the the 12th, 13th century in particular, the start of a real economic revival, a commercial revival. And we see um, merchant communities really engaging rapidly in, in some big commercial ventures in the Mediterranean. So so that that aspect of movement um, that, that aspect of travel was very much driven by commercial um, benefits, by uh, uh, sorry, and, and, and military conquests were driven by by um, the need to sort of uh, obtain territory, etc., etc. But also at the same time, there is a lot of evidence for a revival of pilgrimage in the, in the 12th century, particularly, um, and the 11th century, uh, in, in, and, and here we see. Not something that's novel because pilgrimage um, has its roots way back in the early Christian era, but something that in its frequency, uh, in its visibility, becomes quite new for the medieval world. Um, and so, so, so suddenly we, we can increasingly add this element to movement as a, as a key driver of people moving around. But as I say, we shouldn't just define a pilgrim as therefore someone moving for purely altruistic, perhaps religious, spiritual uh, means. There are all sorts of economic, prestige, um, political values all wrapped up in it. But nonetheless, um, pilgrimage was a, a very powerful drive to move in the Middle Ages. Have we got any idea about how many people went on pilgrimage? Um, not directly, um, certainly not in the period that I discussed in the article, in, in the middle um, part of the medieval period, the central Middle Ages. What what we need to rely on mostly is indirect evidence and, and subtext within source material. Part of the problem is there there isn't any statistical data. Um, the medieval world doesn't throw up that type of material for us very often, unfortunately. Um, there is quite a lot of... Um, Indirect evidence in the form of infrastructure being built, um, monastic hospitals, pilgrim hospitals appearing, um, port facilities developing, um, evidence for um, commercial ventures which also um, cater for carrying large groups of, of pilgrims. Um, and, and one of the issues here too is when we move into the 11th and 12th century, we're still in a period of historical writing in which... Um, we don't really have autobiography as a genre, so we don't really get people talking directly in the first person about their own experiences of movement and travel. Um, that, com- that comes later in the later Middle Ages. So that, that's, a, that's a problem for having someone saying, hey, I'm a pilgrim, I'm travelling for X, Y and Z reasons. Um, what we often have to rely on are, are 
third-person chronicle accounts of why people moved, which isn't as satisfactory, but nonetheless we can still identify movement and pilgrims. Um, and then the other issue is that many of those who are the recorders, the commentators of movement, are often Christian um, ecclesiastical officials, and so they'll, they'll naturally talk about the pilgrimage and spiritual aspects of movement, but they might not engage I want to focus too much on people moving for other reasons within that, which might be purely about leisure and pleasure-seeking. It might not necessarily be within their remit. And indeed, we know in the 1st century, some important Christian preachers, there's a chap called uh, Jacques de Vitry, rail quite vociferously against individuals travelling for curiosity and, and the bizarre. So all in all, we don't have um, the type of direct source evidence for movement to allow us to establish numbers, but we can see under the surface reams of different types of material, uh, source material, telling us that a lot of people are moving now. So your research is, is bringing out some interesting uh, results about the experience that these mm -hmm. travellers had when they were in southern Italy and, and getting there. Um, and, and you've sort of mentioned the fact that there may have been some who were partaking in, in tourism of the curiosity yeah. and the bizarre. So give us an idea about the experience that they had and the sort of things that they were, they were trying to do and trying to see. Well, there, there are a number of chronicle accounts which detail itineraries of certain individuals. Um, and these tend to pass through or taking, first of all, some of the key shrine centres that Southern Italy offers. Um, it's, it has a, a very rich a very rich landscape. It it's, has numerous connections to the ancient Christian heartland, so we have a lot of leading shrine centres in the region. So a lot, a lot of, of travellers through the region encounter um, these main shrine centres, have this, um, this experience which contributes towards hopefully their own salvation at some point along their travels. But at the same time, the South is also incredibly rich in folkloric myth, classical myths, um, which, as part of the revival of learning and, and the so-called renaissance of the 12th century, become increase, increasingly to the fore and, and, and disseminated across Europe much, much more easily. And so some of these travellers we see are actually visiting um, and discussing some of these spots which have classical resonance or... Um, which have um, folkloric um, connotations. For example, Richard I, when he moves through southern Italy on the Third Crusade in 1190, he um, not only visits some important cult centres in southern Italy, like the Shrine of St. Agatha at Catania, he also spends uh, days sightseeing effectively, for example, at Naples, where he visits the famous catacombs in Naples and spends time um, uh, at the tombs of the Sons of Amon, who were famous legendary um, figures in, in the Chanson de Guest, these epic romance poems that were very popular in the 12th century. So um, we get a combination of um, religious travel, shrine centres, we get this, the, the more underlying um, interest in classical and folkloric tales. And also, uh, all this movement is conducted through a landscape that um, has some very challenging uh, and unique attributes. It's, it's a land of, of quite high seismic activity, of earthquakes and 
volcanoes. Um, and these, um, these events, these eruptions, these earthquakes are, are seen still in, in, in the 12th century as signals of um, certain portentous signs, divine displeasure perhaps. So um, engaging with that landscape itself can be, uh, would be a, a challenging aspect particularly for a pilgrim who might be moving within that mental framework. So in the feature you've written for the magazine, you've hinted at some uh, comparisons that you make Mm. towards the modern tourist experience, the idea of the the sensory experience holiday and the idea of adventure travel. How far do you take those comparisons? Yeah, I mean, at the outset, I would, as we almost any subject from the Middle Ages uh, start off with a, a note of caution that we, we must be careful making two direct parallels between the Middle Ages and, and the modern. There, there, are, there are obviously a whole um, thought system apart. There's the, the, the medieval operated in a, in a very different framework and, and in many senses a very different mindset. Um, so with that note of caution, bear in mind, I, I would still argue that we can make fruitful comparisons only only to outline that individuals across history have been impelled by some common features to act in certain ways and uh, curiosity um, the desire to interact with the other or to be fearful of the other um, the desire to broaden one's mind and to um, move for reasons perhaps other than um, survival or functionality. I think uh, are recurrent features across human society, regardless of the chronology. So the the the, the content, the differences might be evident in terms of detail between the medieval and the modern. But I think there are, there are analogies and comparisons there. For example, the, the the way that infrastructure catered for this type of movement, the way that we might think of. Uh, the pilgrim setting out on his journey, knowing that if he did die, he would have a great chance of salvation. You might see there's some kind of sort of insurance policy for his movement, the way that um, individuals deliberately set out to visit restorative health spas with, with hot thermal springs, and how we might even make the analogy of guardians at shrine centres displaying their cults in medias which attract visitors in the way that we might liken it to travel agents. Of course, there's a world of difference between all these things, but sometimes to give kind of a modern label to it might allow us to access a bit better what was actually happening in the Middle Ages, which at first glance looks very different um, and worked in a different mindset, but in in many ways um, has some underlying strands of similarities. Just a couple more questions. I'm I'm wondering how much planning could a medieval traveller put into their mm. trip? Did they have much knowledge, much much information to go on, or did they have really no idea what they were getting themselves into? Yeah, that's a really good question, and, and, and I think there probably isn't um, a satisfactory answer to that. I think um, there's been quite a lot of research and debate about this, um, in that we have a number of pilgrim maps and um, literary accounts, but these normally are preserved in monasteries or in the circles of the elites and therefore not necessarily accessible to the masses, who indeed 
might not have been literate. So um, the most detailed information that might have helped an individual shape their journey might not have been accessible to all. Um, that, that said, there's a, um, a lot of research suggesting that there, there was a whole sense of oral discourse and oral exchanges of tales and accounts, which obviously we can't track, but were undoubtedly influencing individuals to move. Um, the likelihood is that in many cases, there, there must have been some information exchange which allowed pilgrims who knew where they were going, knew their end destination, to plan certain key points as they moved across their itineraries. But possibly that then changed as they moved into certain territories and, and became aware of more significant local shrines that they might not have otherwise known of. So I, I think that the sense is that there, were, there had to have been some pre-planning, of course, for such an undertaking, but that possibly it was open to variation and flexibility as the pilgrim moved into new realms, new territories, and, and found out about different types of shrines that he may not otherwise have known about. But all in all, though, that's, that's quite an area that, that unfortunately we're not as informed on as we'd like to be. So presumably they, they would have, uh, uh, the potential pilgrims would have taken a lot of information from people who had come back from yes. pilgrimage in, in, in an oral fashion. So that leads me on to my last question, which is, do we know anything at all about what happened to them when they came back? Did they just slot into their old lives or did they, you know, find that they were uh, so so enriched by what they'd seen that they had to go and do something else? Or did they just go and, you know, sit in the local tavern and bore everyone senseless <laughs> with their travel stories? Have we got any idea at all? Um, my sense is that it's probably a bit, bit of all of that. Um, some people who returned... Um, fared better than others. And in, in an Italian context, we, we know of some more high-status pilgrims, but admittedly, who went perhaps on, on a crusade and returned back to find that some of their lands had been usurped or, or given away to monasteries and therefore um, came back in and uh, sort of were, were faced with a, a difficult situation on the return. Um, there are others who we know went on multiple pilgrimages thereafter. Um, often these are saints, saintly figures, and this might be a, a kind of a common literary theme that, that this, this individual was so imbued with the, the desire to visit gods and, and, and shrines and powerful shrines that he kept on travelling and travelling. But that, that might well have been uh, a response for some uh, who returned. Um, and, of course, the pilgrim who left, um, in theory, had... Um, their lands and, and family often taken under the protection of local lords. So in, theoretically their, their status and their position should have been safeguarded on, on return. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, again, that's a, it's a, 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 I guess there would be multiple answers to that question uh, and, and probably all of those outcomes you suggested at the start are, are things that we can detect in various snippets of source material. That was Dr Paul Oldfield. You can read his feature on medieval travelling in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is available as a back issue and also through our Kindle and iPad formats. As some of you may be aware, the English Heritage Festival of History sadly had to be cancelled this weekend due to terrible weather conditions. We were all very disappointed not to be able to attend, as I'm sure were many of you. 
At the festival, we were planning to offer a special subscription deal to the magazine, and we've now decided to make that deal available more widely. While stocks last, we'll be giving a free copy of Mark Morris's brilliant new history of the Norman Conquest to all new UK-based subscribers, who will also benefit from substantial savings compared to the shop price. Please visit historyextra.com forward slash festival offer for more details and terms and conditions. June Purvis is Professor of History at Portsmouth University and an expert on the suffragettes. For the August issue of BBC History magazine, she's written a fascinating feature on what postcards from the early 20th century tell us about attitudes to the suffragettes. Professor Purvis has a large collection of contemporary postcards, so Dave Marsgrove popped down to Portsmouth to have a look at the archive and to talk to her a little more about the story. As you listen to this interview, you might like to have a look at a sample of the images, which you can find at historyextra.com forward slash suffragette postcards. Dave began the interview by asking June to set the scene about the suffragette movement. The WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, was founded on the 10th of October 1903 by Mrs Packhurst to be active campaigners for the vote. So it wasn't to be run by committees and it wasn't to be a lot of talking. It was for women to be assertive and to be active in winning the parliamentary vote. That was simply because women had been campaigning for about 40 years already for the vote, but they had adopted very ladylike methods. Now the point about the suffragettes of the WSPU is that they were very unladylike. They were assertive. They would stand up in a meeting, a political meeting, and shout out, what about votes for women? And then particularly from 1912, they engaged in acts of arson, destroying empty buildings, destroying mail in post boxes, um, cutting down telephone wires, um, that sort of really violent militancy, illegal militancy. So it was in the, in the first decade of the, of the 20, uh, 20th century and up until the start of the First World War that this was a really um, a live social issue. Yes, it was very much a live social issue. And in particular, a lot of people were horrified that women were being so unwomanly, unwomanly, um, so unladylike, and campaigning in this way for their right for the parliamentary vote. Okay, and one of the ways to, that we can understand what was going on at the time and social attitudes and social mores is, is by looking at postcards, as, as you've identified. Um, so before we get on to that, you ought to just tell us a bit about postcards at the time and, and how important they were as a, as a sort of a mechanism and a, and a media. Yes, postcards were the most common and cheapest form of communication in the early 20th century. Um, it would just cost you half a penny to post a postcard, and by 1913, a staggering 900 million postcards were posted. The postal service, of course, was so much better then than it is now. In major cities, for example, you might have up to 10 posts a day, and in the rural areas, you might have up to five. So you might send a postcard in the morning, say, I'll see you in the afternoon, and expect, you know, the person to have received it the same day. 
So it was, so postcards were in a sense the sort of the mobile phones, the emails of the day, people were actually using them as, as you know, as, as quick and easy ways to talk to each other. Yes, uh, people were using postcards as a quick and easy way to talk to each other. They were the email of the day, the mobile phone of the day, the tweet of the day or whatever. Yeah, okay. So. Let's talk about suffragettes and postcards then. So uh, we've got some laid out on the table in front of us we're going to talk about in a minute. But um, what, what were postcards being used for in terms of, of the suffragette debate? How, 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 what messages were they, were they portraying? Well, you tend to find there's two main types of postcards. There's the photographic postcard, which tend to be the most expensive to buy today. And those are photographs of the leaders of the WSPU, so photographs of people like Mrs Pankhurst or Christabel Pankhurst or Emmeline Peckett-Lawrence, and you could buy those usually for a penny in the WSPU shops or at meetings. And also you would find that they were postcards uh, that the WSPU issued of um, processions and um, those would be about a penny as well. So those are the photographic postcards that are mainly, of course, pro pro the suffragette movement. Okay, so you've, so you've got a few few here. Yes. Um, and so we've got Mrs. Pankhurst there, looking. Um, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the, the most most traditional photo, I suppose. That's yes. what we, you tend to see quite and a lot. You can of see it. what a very handsome woman she was in that. She was always very conscious of her jawline, but I, I think she was very very handsome. Was sort of vaguely interesting to me um, as a, as a non-expert. The, the, the way they're being portrayed, they don't look particularly militant, no, do they? No. They look ladylike, and, right, uh, and as you were saying right. earlier, they, you know, the, 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 what was levelled against them was they are unladylike, yeah. and yet in these yeah. portraits I'm not getting a sense of, the, of, a, of an unladylike attitude. No, I think that's probably um, the photographer as well had a particular image of how you take a a studio photograph in those days. I think that that influenced those very, very much. Because mm. all of them are like that. I mean, here's a, a postcard of a lesser-known suffragette, Nell Kenny, who was the sister of Annie, that one signed. And you see, even there, it's a very formalised pose mm. in her white Edwardian blouse and presumably a dark skirt. Um, that one you may be interested in, a Flora Drummond one of the leaders of the WSPU, and she usually wore military uniforms, so mm. she was known as General Drummond. I mean, she looks a bit more on the militant front. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And perhaps um, the most famous suffragette of all, Emily Wilding Davison, if you look at that one, I mean, she took a first-class honours degree in English, and so that portrait of her is in her graduate gown, mm. holding the role of the... Um, degree she's just been awarded, so she doesn't look militant. No, no. Uh, and it's and it, this one is is entitled the late Miss E. W. Yes, Davis. Yeah. Um, so was it, these were these were produced after after she after she died after yeah. that that notable incident. That's right. Um, so after June nineteen thirteen, when yeah. she died. So would would these have been particularly popular? Well, I think people would have bought them because mm. uh, people were genuinely shocked and in deep sorrow that she had lost her life at at the Derby in June nineteen thirteen. Yeah, but but as you say, I mean, the interesting thing about this yeah. is 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 
that they, you know, the portraits here, they do not come across no. as people who you would think, no. crikey, they are. They come across they're, as they're very arsonists nice and, and you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and doing yeah. all sorts, sorts of um, of militant things. So no. it's quite interesting that, yes. that is that. You mentioned that, that you know part of the photographer's you know way at the time yeah. was, was to present them that way. But do you think would they have been actively looking for that sort of presentation to? To, to, to fight against those those accusations. Of, yeah, I think of, so, yes. I think so, because they were very much into... It was a wonderful propaganda organisation, the WSPU, and they wanted to win over the public to their cause. So obviously, if you're going to win the public to your cause, you want attractive, in inverted commas, postcards off the suffragettes, not them looking dishevelled and mm. when they've just put say, tar into a postbox to destroy mail. Mm. So what, what sort of people would have been buying these, do you think? I think members of the suffragette movement bought mm. them and kept them in Albans. Um, so they, they, they were often a source of inspiration for people, I think. And presumably this was a valuable fundraising yes, tool yes, for, for the yes, organisation as well. Yes. Yeah. And as I said, you could go into a WSPU shop and, and buy these mm. for a penny. Okay. So that's so that's one class of the of the postcards then, these 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 portraits of the suffragettes. Themselves. And it's interesting, not a lot of these portraits and I mean I've been collecting for over twenty years, not a lot of them you will find are posted. Right. These are the ones that are kept in albums and kept carefully um, through the ages, okay. through the decades. Okay, so that's one sort, and then we've got this this other entirely different sort of postcard, yeah. um, which uh, is is probably there's slightly more to talk about, I suppose, because they that <laughs> uh, they're they are very different. So, um, gives a sense of of what we're looking at here. I think the the majority of the postcards that are collected today and are available are what we call comic in inverted commas postcards, and these were published by commercial publishers to make money. And what they drew upon was this long misogynist tradition of sort of musical culture from the Victorian era where they ridicule women and poke fun of them. So for example in this postcard here um, You've got the Houses of Parliament in the background and you've got a gentleman coming along with his umbrella and very middle class looking and he says, well I've heard about suffragettes and their bombs and in front of him is a suffragette with a great big bottom, you know, oversized and fat. So that's the typical sort of humour that would be drawn upon um, to emphasise this point that the suffragettes were comic figures, really, and that their purpose wasn't really serious. And if you look at her, um, she's got the sash on in, in the WSPU colours of purple, white and green, and she's holding a copy of Votes for Women. So those are signals as to what she is and what she's doing. Now, you said that these, these are produced by commercial publishers, so not um, these aren't necessarily produced by organisations that are out and out to to you know to critique the suffragette cause no, they're not no. anti that they're looking to make some money because there is this they know that they can tap into this misogynistic attitude that you yes. that you mentioned no no the, these are made by commercial publishers 
purely to make money. So they, these postcards weren't made by the anti-suffrage organisations particularly. They may have perhaps have produced a few, but the overwhelming majority were just commercial products. Now what is quite interesting in regard to these postcards is that single women are usually portrayed as very ugly. You know, they've got big noses, they've got back teeth, mm. they wear clothes that aren't attractive at all, so they don't look very feminine. And they're always portrayed as man-hating. Mm. And so I've got this postcard here, which was quite a common one, mm. of the suffragette standing on a platform and below are men and women who are listening to her and she's shaking her hand like this and mm. looks quite fierce. And the caption says, Suffragettes, beauty and intellect are superior to brute force. So she's seen as being very fierce. And then the people below are shouting out comments that were quite common for the suffragettes to receive. So, go home and wash the baby. That's one comment, implying, you know, that women are, are mainly, should mainly be mothers. So, is... The, the this, the caricature of, the, of the, uh, the, the woman dressed in unfashionable, unflattering clothes, was there any truth in that at all? I mean, uh, from what we've looked at for the other postcards, probably it wasn't, but were, was there an element of, of suffragettes who went out of their way to dress in a, uh, a, a, a manner that would have been seen as unfashionable, as dowdy perhaps? Um, Mrs Pankhurst was very emphatic about this, that when the suffragettes went on demonstrations and processions, they should always be dressed in white dresses, looking very smart, with the sash and purple, white and green over their shoulder, and a hat on. So they were very, very careful about that, to always present themselves um, as very orderly-looking mm. feminine women. But they, of course, they often did quite unfeminine things for the time. Yeah. So, so that is an entirely unfair yes. caricature. Yes, that's right. Mm. Yes, it is a caricature. Mm. Okay. Um, Another one, we... perhaps, yeah. we might look at that is different to those I've discussed in um, yeah. your journal. Yeah. So this is a suffragette this in prison. This is a suffragette in prison. This is a small postcard, and it says, To a suffragette. So she's sitting in prison with the prison dress on and it says the little verse, while you remain a suffragette, a valentine you'll never get. What man would ever want a wife who spends in prison half her life? Mm, yeah. um, so I suppose the question is, is if these were widespread postcards, did they, do, we, do we know whether they had any impact on on women, Did the, would women have seen these and thought, actually, you know, that's, they've got a point there. If I, if I take up the suffragette cause, I am going to find myself, you know, out of, out of the normal run of society and I am going to struggle to, to get myself a man. Would, would, would things like that have influenced people, do you think? Oh, probably did. And in fact, the women who were against suffrage, the anti-suffrage women, were a much larger number than those who were for. And um, one of the common arguments against women having the vote was that women couldn't defend the nation. They weren't involved in the defence of the nation. So I think it's quite possible that, you know, these postcards did, did influence in some way. But above all, for me, I think what they show is 
part of the cultural context of the time, that these were common currency, you could buy them anywhere, you could send them, and they were very misogynist and sexist, I think, in, in the messages that, that they gave to women, and they were very much emphasising the message that women should be feminine in appearance, um, and they should basically be wives and mothers and not move outside of the sphere of the home mm. into politics. And I've got another one here, another postcard. This is probably the most common one. Mm. And it shows um, a kitten, a black kitten, and it's meowing. And behind that, on the back of the postcard, you have the colours of the WSPU, purple, white and green. Mm. And that's quite an interesting image because this cat's meowing and saying, I want my vote. So cats are cuddly and soft, but they can also be quite vicious and have claws. So I think there's a, there's a double message being portrayed there. And you often find um, the suffragettes represented as cats in postcard, on mm. postcards. Right. That's quite a, a convoluted message in a way, in, yeah. in, in comparison to these much more obvious yeah. ones that we've, yeah. we've got here. Would that have hit home with people at the time? Would they have understood that? that I think so. And the, and I think so. Message? You know, a cat is to be petted and looked mm. after. It's a home creature. It likes its home comforts. But these suffragettes were quite catty. You know, they could be assertive. They could scratch. Yeah. And as I said, that was probably the most common postcard that you will, you will find now. Okay. Okay, and then uh, what about this one, the, uh, the, the, the married suffragette? It's yes, we've, we've spoken about the, the single suffragette mm. and how she was often portrayed as being very unfeminine. And if you were married, if you managed to catch a man, uh, you didn't escape the, the ire of the commercial publishers. So in this postcard... The couple are featured in bed. He's lying there with his eyes open. Um, he's lying there with his head on the pillow and she's sitting up in bed looking quite horrendous. And she's saying to him, monster, what did I marry you for? Get up and make the breakfast. So this idea of the sort of nagging, domineering wife was, mm. was a very, very common image yeah. that that is what the married suffragette would be like and yeah. husbands were timid little creatures who, who had to bow to the wishes of this overpowering assertive woman. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense of the sort of the world turned upside down type thing. Oh there, yes, the, yes. The, the, I the think there was a very being, being reversed. Yeah, there was a very real fear that the gender order was going to be turned upside down. That if you gave women the vote, women would come into parliament. You'd have a woman speaker. You might even have women cabinet ministers or a women prime minister. So there was this fear that the world would be turned upside down. And what would happen to the family? What would happen to children? Okay. Um, and then we've got this other one which, which goes back into the sort of the prison theme that we've, we've seen one before. And this is, this is feeding a suffragette by force, which is this 
Um, you know, it's this very unpleasant process that you've, you've written about in the magazine before the, the force feeding yeah, of, of, yeah. of suffragettes. So, so uh, this is, I mean, what, what, what message are they trying to get across here? You know, they're showing, showing the suffragette with a, a, a huge siphon of milk being rammed down her, down her throat and, and being held down by a prison warder and a, a doctor, presumably, while she's kicking out in, 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 in anger against it. Um, so, it's, you know, it's depicting that, that episode, that, that that, that 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 thing that people knew was going on. Yes. I mean, it's not funny in any way, is it? It's not funny. But is it supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be sort of mocking? Well, I think it is mocking them, and what it's saying, however assertive you are, you wild women, you wild suffragettes, you can be overcome mm. by the force of the state. In this case, it's a doctor putting this big syringe into her mouth, and she's she's kicking back. And she's grabbed his hair, if you look, if you look at it. Yeah. But she's also been held down, so she's been overcome by, by physical force. So however much you protest, the state can, kill, can still overcome your objections. But what is interesting to me about this particular postcard is, is the message on the back. Oh, yeah. And perhaps we, we might say something about that, that... There's often a tremendous disjuncture between what's on the front of the postcard and the message on the back. So people did just use them to send to somebody else with a message that's completely unconnected to the picture. So on this one, it, I'm not sure when it was posted. It, we can't see the date clearly. Can you see that? Uh, oh, yes. February, February 11. Yeah, 1911, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So this was posted 1911 from Bishopsgate in London. Dear Maud, the snowdrops were very nice. They looked so nice after they had been in water for a little while. I hope you are all well. We are having a lot of rain here. Again with love, yours, E.N. And that was posted to a Miss... Maud Nixon in Grantham. Hmm. So the message is, doesn't relate to the picture on the postcard at all. So presumably people just picked up the postcard and thought, oh, that's all right, and I'll, I'll send Maud a message <laughs> or whatever. Just, just to finish off, how does this story end? You know, post-war, do, do postcards like this become less popular, less appropriate? Do, do, do we stop? When, when do we start to see the last of these sorts of designs? What do you mean, the, the suffrage postcards? The suffrage yeah, postcards. Yeah. With the outbreak of the First World War in August 1914, Emmeline Pankhurst called an end to militancy. She didn't actually stop campaigning for the vote. She, she carried on campaigning for it. But what she said this time was that women's war work would help them to win their enfranchisement. And with the outbreak of the First World War, then you find that this massive industry of suffrage postcards stops. Um, so you know that the, the majority of them, at least, are pre-1914. I have got a few uh, World War I postcards um, about women, but mm. it's less about suffrage. So, sort of, did did she win the propaganda battle, sort of, you know, with one stroke by by making that that move? I think so, yes, and because they were quite worried, I think, her and Christabel, that in fact they could, you know, they could be accused of treason if, if they carried on campaigning against the state. So they did a strategic and a very shrewd turn in regard to campaigning and then put all their efforts into women's war work. 
for winning the enfranchisement. And that, of course, demolished, demolished the anti-suffrage argument about women weren't involved in the defence of the nation. Because clearly women were involved in the de defence of the nation by making munitions, for example, and by working generally on the home front. That was Professor June Purvis talking to Dave Mosgrove. You can read her feature on suffragette postcards in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale in the UK and worldwide through our digital formats. And if you've not yet had a chance to do so, please visit historyextra.com forward slash suffragette postcards to see a sample of these images. June Purvis's latest work is Women's Activism, Global Perspectives from the 1890s to the Present, which she's co-edited, and that will be published by Routledge later this year. Inside the book is a chapter on the WSPU's fight against the double moral standard. Speaking of our August issue, you may have heard in the radio or seen in the press a story about the discovery of medieval lingerie in Austria. The original piece appeared in our August issue and you can now read it online as well. Just go to historyextra.com forward slash lingerie. Our August issue is a Norman Conquest special, and if it's whetted your appetite for all things Norman, then you might be interested in a lecture that we're putting on at the British Academy. On the 20th of September, you can hear historians Mark Morris and Tracy Borman give talks about the events of 1066, and you'll also get the chance to meet Mark and Tracy and purchase signed copies of their books. For more details, please visit historyextra.com forward slash lectures, and magazine subscribers will get a discount on tickets. Well, that's about it for this episode. Next week, we'll be finding out about the Luddites and discussing a Cold War Olympic boycott. Do please join us for that. And in the meantime, please keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find blogs, quizzes, galleries and plenty more. And don't forget you can find our Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and it's produced by Dave Gibson. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.